Do you guys realize that this morning we worship a holy, um, righteous, perfect God? Who, by the way, loves imperfect, unrighteous, unholy people and has offered us grace and redemption? That's worthy to sing of, to sing about, to praise God for. Before we get going today, I want to do something really quick. Um, every year, this time of year, I like to just briefly say a big congrats to those who have completed a degree, whether that's high school or college. And uh, so if you have, com- you have to be honest this morning, all right? So if you have completed a, a high school or college education and uh, you are shy, you have to be honest and raise your hand and say, I completed um, and if you have not yet completed high school or college, you cannot lie and raise your hand just to get a book if you are outgoing. <laughs> um, let's say within the past three weeks, <laughs> all right? Um, so let's just this. If you are a graduate, can we just have you stand? Let's give the, we got a graduate back there, a couple graduates, one, two, three, four, five, six graduates. So we have, can you catch? Oh, that is, <laughs> they were like, don't do it. She can't catch. Have you guys got the book yet? If you have, give it away to someone else. Here you go. I'll give you another book. Um, this is a book that we're giving out uh, to these graduates called The Reason for God by Tim Keller. Um, it's a book that I've given away I, the, a couple years during this season to graduates um, it, I think, is just a needed book on, on your bookshelf. It's a, it's a book on apologetics. It goes through some very key questions that are modern, that are, are real questions that people are asking today about the faith, about Christianity, um, and uh, it, it does a phenomenal job at handling some of these questions and giving a, a, a solid reasoning for uh, why we should believe in God. And so that's the book. It's also available for $10. It's our congregational reading for this month. And they're on the back uh, table if you have not uh, graduated. If you want one for free, um, get into college or something. <laughs> All right. Sprouts can be dismissed. And if you have your Bibles this morning, I ask that you turn to the book of Mark. If you need a Bible, if you could just slip up your hand, we can get you um, one of our Bibles. We have been in Mark now for 18 weeks, and this is our final week. You all ready for this? The Gospel of Mark. Chapter 16, and we're going to read the first eight verses. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. And follow along as, as I read. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had yet risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. Everybody say, yes. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See this place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There, you will see him just as he told you. 
And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they had nothing, they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Please pray with me. God, we ask that you open up this passage to us. We recognize, Lord, that we are reading something that is living, something that is powerful. And God, we believe that as these words are proclaimed and as these truths are proclaimed this morning, that you can do something in our hearts that we could never do ourselves. God, as we look into this passage, I ask that we see beyond the words, that we see beyond my words, that we see beyond me or ourselves, and that we see first and foremost the risen Jesus. And I pray that you will convict us of the many places in our life where we forget the risen Savior. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Verse 8. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. Astonishment or amazement had seized them. In this moment, they see that the, the tomb is empty, And they are gripped with amazement. They are gripped with astonishment. For very good reason, right? Look at verse 47 of chapter uh, 15. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Now that that word saw is an active word. It means they they actually watched it happen. They, They were witnesses to the fact that he was that he died, and they were witnesses to the fact that he was buried. They saw it happen. They watched this thing take place. All right, this is, um, you have a relative that passes away, and you go to the funeral, and you walk up the steps, and you're greeted by a cousin that you haven't seen in a while, and you walk into the funeral home, and you're greeted by that, that weird smell of perfume and flowers and whatever it is that they fill fl- funeral homes with, and you stand in line, waiting to see the casket. And you see people speaking with the spouse, and the casket's over there, but you don't really look, right? Um, And then you finally get up to the spouse, and you uh, say, I'm sorry. You don't know what else to say. And then you finally turn, and you look in the face of the dead body. And you know immediately that he's no longer there. And so you don't have to look very long. All right. Seen it, checked that off my list. Moving on, he wasn't there. You stick the little purple flag on your hood and you drive in the procession to the cemetery and you arrive and there's a small tent that's been erected with a hole that's recently been dug and there you listen to the minister, but not really because your attention's on the spouse wondering what's going through their mind at this moment. And then finally, the casket is slowly lowered into the hole. And it's in that moment that you realize this is the end. This is the end of this funeral. This is the end of this man's life. And then you go home. You sit with some friends, maybe some relatives. You have conversations. You reminisce. And then the next morning you get up and go back to work and you go on with your life. Now we've got to understand something here. As Mary and Mary watch Jesus uh, die and then laid into the tomb, this is their experience. They're done. It's over. Like this right here at the end of chapter 15 should be the end. Like we should just stop it, cut it off, right? I mean, if we're talking about just normal human experiences and the way that we experience life and death, like that's pretty much it. Read the biographies of some of the greatest world leaders and movers and shakers, and it ends with what? Their death. It always ends with their death, and that's it. No more. There's not, a, not another chapter. 
This should have been a tragic ending here. Do you see? Like, it's a tragedy. This innocent man who was wrongly murdered, and now he's laid in the ground, and it's all over. And they try to wake up, and they try to go to work, and they try to go on with their life. But you see, the story of Jesus, and this is why I love the story of Jesus. This is why I've been so excited over the last winter and spring to just walk through the book of Mark. It's because it has a really great ending. Like, the story of Jesus is anything but tragic. It's a story of triumph. Unlike the ending of every single great world leader and mover and shaker in our history. My boy Shai Lin, he raps it like this. I'm not going to rap it, I'm just going to read it. Elvis is dead, he says. Picasso is dead. Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin are dead. Marilyn Monroe is dead. Brando, James Brown, Princess Di, John Lennon are all dead. Biggie Smalls and Pac are dead. Plato is dead. Socrates is dead. Aristotle is dead. Immanuel Kant is, are, are dead. Nietzsche and Darwin are dead. Buddha, Muhammad, and Gandhi and Hali Salis are dead. Elijah Muhammad is dead. However, Jesus is alive. Anything but usual, normal, anything but tragic. You see, our Savior and our Messiah has a really great ending, or we, should, we could even say a really great beginning to our story and to his story. This morning, that morning, uh, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, woke up prepared to go help the body of their dead Savior, Lord, leader. They went out and they bought expensive spices and perfumes. This is a common way to just respect the decaying dead body of someone in this era. As they're on their way with their expensive perfumes to go help the body of Jesus, they're thinking to themselves, how are we going to move that big stone? Remember the stone that was rolled in front of the tomb? Um, a couple of little women. That's kind of an issue. Something. To th- so they're on their way. Okay, let's, let's put a strategy together. We're going to have to find somebody maybe. Maybe a couple sticks. I don't know. We're going to figure this out. How are we going to? I mean, they are prepared to work. They are ready to be workers this day. They're ready to roll up their sleeves to mess with a decaying and dead and stinky body to to sweat and to figure out how to move this rock, this stone, this boulder. What they don't realize, and this is what we don't often realize, is that Jesus doesn't actually need any help. Like, Jesus didn't need their help that morning. And see, a lot of times, the way that we do our Christian lives and the way that we try to do, quote-unquote, ministry or church even, sometimes we think that Jesus needs our help. Meaning, a quick example, um, we're sharing a passage from the Scriptures with somebody, and all of a sudden we realize that we're getting to a pretty difficult spot. And we're afraid that Jesus can't use these, these scriptures to really convert this soul and, and he needs our help to kind of like smooth it over and change it up a little bit so it can be a little more palatable, a little more, it, it can taste a little bit better. And so then we try to give Jesus a little hand up and help him out in converting a soul and we completely miss the work of God and the spirit of God in the midst of it. One uh, pastor who was starting a church around the same time I was told me that, that the way he's, he looks at it is like a business. Find out what people want in the community and then give it to them. Because that's what Jesus did, right? <laughs> so, so we're going to rethink the message. We're going to rethink the, the proclamation. I mean, since, 
let me just be simple. Since when was the proclamation of Jesus Christ not enough? Jesus doesn't need your help to clean him up, to spice him up, and, and to find some way to present him. He didn't need the help of these women this morning. They're, they're ready to roll up their sleeves. They're ready to get going. They're ready to figure out how to move this stone and to, to mess with this nasty, stinky body. And they get there and they realize that Jesus didn't need their help and the stone had already been rolled away. And by the way, they wasted their money on the perfumes because God had already, bam, raised Jesus up from the dead. He didn't need their help in being raised up from the dead. And they arrive, they arrive at the tomb, and the tomb is empty. And, and there, there is an angel sitting there. Look at verse, verse 6. He says to them, Do not be alarmed, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Because remember, you were just here a couple days ago, and you saw him laid right here, and he has gotten up, and he's no longer there. The resurrection, redemption, salvation, the lordship of Jesus Christ is not something that we turn him into. It's not something that we do for him. We just simply bear witness to the work that he does. We bear witness to the work that God does. In 1 Corinthians 15, I invite you to turn there. It's a couple books over not too far from Mark, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 4. I want to look at a couple verses. In verse 4, Paul writes, Jesus was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Now, Jesus not only woke up and the stone rolled away and he walked out, but then he appeared, all right? He appeared to these followers of his. Now, if we stop it right there, if we cut it off right there in 1 Corinthians, someone might make the, the accusation, well, these 12, they just didn't want to be embarrassed. And so they, they got together and they made up a, a story. He was resurrected and let's just all agree on, on that and, and just tell everybody that he was resurrected from the dead. However, it doesn't, it doesn't stop right there. He appears to the 12, and then look at verse 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So then there was a group of people, oh, 500 or so, and at one time, Jesus appears to all 500 plus people. And then he says, you guys got to understand, understand this. He says, and by the way, most of them are still alive. Some of them have died. Some of them aren't around anymore. But the vast majority of these people that Jesus appeared to are still alive. Now, this is what makes this a historical document. Any historical document has a, a, an opportunity to be verified in some ways. Paul is basically throwing it out there and he's saying, look, this happened, there are all of these witnesses, and if you don't believe me, and if you don't believe one of these core followers who are teaching this, there are over there are 500 people that can testify to this. Go, check, it, check out my sources. And here's the amazing thing about this. There is not one shred of evidence in all of history that any one of these 500 people came back and said, no, we just made it up. There's not one shred of evidence that anybody took this letter, this historical letter to this first century church to the Corinthians 
and said, yeah, Paul um, said that there were 500. I couldn't find one. Like, it's, it's not anywhere. Not only that, but every single one of the 11 disciples that walked with Jesus, that then became his apostles, every single one of them were brutally murdered, claiming that he rose from the dead. Many of the hundreds of people that were the original followers, that were the original witnesses to the resurrection, were martyred. And there is not one single shred of historical evidence in which any one of them, before their skin was boiled off their body, recanted their story. We just made it up. Additionally, Josephus, who was a secular first century historian, he was not a Christian, said this about Jesus. He said, When Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day. That is, that's a piece of history right there. That's good history. Then he goes on, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named for him, are not extinct at this day. Which was fairly remarkable. Oh, and by the way, the tribe of Christians is not extinct at this day either. Because we don't worship and serve a dead guy. We have a risen Savior who is Lord over us and who has brought us through death. And his resurrection is a historical, unarguable fact. My wife used to watch the show Made. You guys ever seen the show Made? M-A-D-E. We used to have TV. We don't anymore. You carnal people that watch TV. Um, made, the premise of Made is that there's this person who has some raw talent. And if they could just get somebody behind them, right, to make them, then they could be whatever they want to be. A cheerleader, maybe. Or a, I don't know, appear in a music video. And they do. They make these people. And when we look at celebrities, we look at biographies of celebrities. What we find is almost always there was somebody behind that person who made them. There was somebody with this grand vision of this, the talent that they saw in this guy or this girl. And man, we could, we could lose this talent. We could lose this to history. So, so I'm going to get behind them and I'm going I'm to put them in touch with the right people, with the movers and shakers, and I'm going to make them into something we see this all the time. Listen, I want you to understand this. Nobody made Jesus. Jesus didn't need a PR agent to put him in touch with the movers and shakers of his day. He didn't need a street team. He, Jesus didn't need to be on the front page of the newspaper. He just rose from the dead. And you see the people then that are around Jesus are not making him into who he is today. They're not making him the Lord. They're not making him the Savior. They're not making him the Christ. They are simply falling on their knees and bearing witness to what they are watching, what they're seeing happen before them. Here in Mark, Chapter 16, we see an empty tomb, a stone that's been rolled away. We hear this angelic announcement. He is no longer dead, but he is risen from the dead. What more could we possibly want? And the response of Mary and Mary in verse 8 is 
astonishment seized them. Amazement had seized them. And that word astonishment, it is the Greek word ekstasis, which, which gives us the idea of, of the casting down of a thing from its proper place or state. Complete displacement, throwing, throwing the mind out of the state that the, that the mind normally is in. A state of blended fear and wonderment. They are astonished. Astonishment has gripped them and has seized them. And if there's anything, as we've been in Mark for 18 weeks, if there's anything that is a reoccurring theme that we see over and over and over again, it is that Jesus is amazing. He's amazing. In chapter 1 of Mark, going back a couple months, in verse 22, we see as Jesus opens his mouth and as he begins to teach, the response of the crowds is amazement. Again, in verse 27, a couple verses later, he's debating. There's a debate that's happening, and they are amazed at him. In chapter 2, verse 12, it says he healed a paralytic, and they were all amazed at, and were glorifying God. In chapter 5, verse 33, there was a woman who had this issue of blood for 12 years. And after she was healed, she was, she was gripped with fear and trembling. And then a few verses later in verse 42, this little girl is dead. She's laid out. Everybody's mourning and weeping outside. And Jesus goes in and he just speaks to her. And she, life fills her body. She wakes up from the dead. And by the way, it's the same exact word, ecstasis, that's used. They are filled then with amazement. They are filled with astonishment at what Jesus has done. In chapter 9, we see the transfiguration. Remember that? And, and the response after this, this amazing event, the response is, is fear and trembling. They're terrified. The crowds then, after he gets down to the bottom of the mountain, were amazed, it says, and they ran up to him. In chapter 10, Jesus is teaching once again. And in verse 26, it says that they were astonished at his teaching. And then a couple verses later, in verse 32, it says that they were amazed at his teaching. Jesus is amazing, isn't he? In chapter 11, he turns over the tables in the temple. And then he begins teaching after that. And it says that they were astonished at his teaching. In chapter 12, they were trying to trap him in all of these different ways, and they couldn't. They could not trap him. And it says that they marveled at him. And then chapter 15, Jesus stands before Pilate, about to be crucified, and Pilate asks him for a response, and Jesus stays quiet. And Pilate's response was amazement at Jesus. And then the next chapter, the tomb is empty, the third day, and they are seized, they are gripped with astonishment. The story that Mary and Mary thought had come to an end, the story was not over. As a matter of fact, the story was just beginning. And in this moment, they, they are gripped with this strange, wonderful, terrifying, beautiful, astonishing reality that he is awake, that he's walking among, among us, that death, even death, could not hold him down. <clears throat> Has Jesus amazed you? Have you been astonished with him? Over the past 18 weeks, as we've been just walking through the Gospel of Mark, have you been astonished with Jesus over and over and over again? 
every step of the way, every conversation he has, every time he handles himself in a difficult situation or teaches something that's just powerful or demonstrates love in a way that we could have never dreamed it? Are you astonished with him? As we watch him go to the cross and bear the wrath of our sins, are you astonished with him? As we observe the tomb and it's, he's no longer there, it's empty. Each, each week I have the opportunity to, to have a Bible study with, uh, with some guys who are, almost all of them are um, former hustlers. One of the conversations we've recently had is, uh, is that there is absolutely nothing left to experience, um, is the way one guy put it. I've experienced everything there possibly is. I go to other cities, it's boring. Done it all, seen it, done it. These guys have all been uh, locked up. They've done some serious time. Um, and they are hungry for something. Some of them, the light's turning on. Some of them, they're beginning to understand what it is that they're hungry for. Some, not so much. I was, this past week, I was sitting with them there's about eight of us, and I was trying to explain to them how astonishing it is when we look to Jesus, when we see Jesus. And I was like, I, <clears throat> I said, all right, so you've been locked up. Um, when you were released from prison, you did your time, two years, five years, ten years, whatever it was, when you were released from prison, would it have been right for the judge to come back and, th and throw you back into prison for the, for the same crime? And you can imagine what the response was. Of course not. So being released from prison then says the time's been served, the sentence has been served, it's all paid. Then I said, well, what if someone actually was able to stand in your place and go to jail on your behalf? And then they were released from prison. What does that say to you? Look, I want you to understand why the resurrection is so important. Our, our sentence for the crimes that we have committed against God from the day we were born until now. Our sentence is death, eternal torment. Jesus then hung on the cross, bearing the, the punishment and the wrath of God for us on our behalf. Now, how do we know that God is fully satisfied with the, work of God, with the work of Christ on the cross? How do we know that He has completely paid it all? How do we know that the sentence is done? It's because three days later, He was released. He was thrust from the grave. God raised him from the dead. And we know that it is paid in full. That Jesus has indeed completely absorbed our wrath or God's wrath for us. And the work's finished. The sentence is finished. Now, what does that mean for us? So what do we do, all right? We, we've been through Mark, we've been tracking with Jesus, we've been listening to him, watching him, we've, we, we've been understanding what the cross means for us. Now he's risen from the dead, defeating death, defeating sin, defeating the grave, showing that God's wrath has been completely absorbed and that it's done. What does that mean for us now, today? 
another way we could say that is, okay, so now I'm a Christian. Now what? What do I do? If there is any, if there is any uh, place, any teaching, any commission that Jesus can give us post-death and post-resurrection, if anything comes from his mouth and he says, all right, so go do this. I think we should take note of that, right? So what does Jesus say for us to do? For those of us who are wandering, for those of us who are wondering what our purpose is in life, for those of us who have experienced and tasted the beauty of the cross and the resurrection of grace and forgiveness, now what? What do we consume our lives with? Mark chapter 15, verse 15, he says, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Mark chapter 13, verse 10, going back a couple chapters. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations or peoples or people groups. Mark chapter 14, verse 9, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, Luke chapter 24, verse 47, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations or peoples or people groups beginning from Jerusalem, and you are the witnesses of these things. Matthew chapter 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations or peoples or people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, you will receive power, he says, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will then be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. And what do we see the early church do? They watch him die. They're witnesses of his death. Now they watch him burst from death. They're witnesses of his resurrection. What do they do? They proclaim it. Like any good witness would do. They go out and they verbally proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2, verse 7, the, as we track through the early church, Acts chapter 2, verse 7, we see them risking their lives as they proclaim the gospel in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8, we see the early church risking their lives as they leave Jerusalem. It's squashed, persecution. They leave and that they now risk their lives preaching the gospel in Judea and in Samaria. And in the remainder of the book of Acts, we see the early church risking their lives. It's all about Jesus giving everything that they have for this Savior as they share the gospel and as they take the gospel to all of the known world, to all peoples. So what should we be consumed with today? We have one command, one commission, and that is to go into all of the world. Baltimore, Upton, let's start here, Bolton Hill, Baltimore City, Maryland, the United States, and then the rest of the world to all people groups. Do you know how many people groups there are in this world? 11,000. And we are called to take this good news of what we've been tracking within Mark and the witness of his death and resurrection, and we are pro to proclaim that good news in all of the world. Like, that's literally a call for us. And there's not many of us sitting here right now, so we need to get working, right? We are a small church, and this call is the same for us as it was, as it was for them. It is the exact same call. And if we took this seriously, like if we were completely consumed with the one thing that we are supposed to be consumed with, we would begin to get a glimpse. If, as much as an athlete is consumed with training for a marathon, I tried to train for a marathon once. And those of you who have done that and you succeeded, well done, thou good and faithful runner. 
Like that is some hard work and you have to be completely dedicated and committed to that a couple hours every day. Now, if we were that consumed with Jesus Christ and we truly embodied the fact that it's all about Jesus, like I have one life to live and it's all going to be about Jesus. If we took the gospel as seriously, I've said this before, as seriously as the hustlers take the drug trade, we would begin to get a glimpse. If we took the gospel as seriously as a video gaming addict takes video games, we would then get a glimpse into what it was like to be part of the early church. Completely consumed with Jesus and taking the gospel, risking their lives, walking away from their families, walking away from their jobs, walking away from their security, risking their lives completely, utter abandonment to the work of God and spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. I remember when, when this first hit me. I was 18 years old. Um, I had recently come to the full understanding of the gospel. Like God literally just came in uninvited, knocked down the walls of my heart, grabbed me and pulled me to him. I was dead and he made me alive. Completely his work. And I was so thrilled about this as an 18-year-old, but I didn't know what to do with it. Oh my, that you would save me. That you would come in and just rescue me. That you would draw me to you in this way. And I remember I was 18 years old and I really didn't quite know what to do with it, but I was excited. I was just like, God, show me what to do. And so I was sitting in a uh, church service at my uh, parents' church. And we were singing this song. And, and the strangest thing was that I was singing at all. <laughs> because I hadn't liked church and I thought the songs were ridiculous. And I was singing this song. Which, by the way, just a little side note. People that are transformed by the gospel just can't help but sing about it. And if, if you don't understand, just wait till God transforms you and you'll understand. Like we, we just love to to just praise him in any way that we possibly can. And so here I am, as an 18-year-old, singing an 18th century hymn that was awkward and weird. And I'm just like in it, and I'm singing it. Um, and actually, I've asked Kiersey, if you could grab your violin, Kiersey, I've asked Kiersey to play this for us. I want you guys to sing this with me. This is an 18th century hymn that's very odd but very beautiful. I, I want you to sing this with me because I want, to, I want you to understand what was going through my 18-year-old mind and how I began to understand and see how the Great Commission, what we were about. So this is a song called Alas and Did My Savior Bleed. There's the lyrics. What we're going to do, uh, some of you may know this. I'm going to have Kirsty play it one time through so we can get the tune, all right? And then you're going to sing it with me. Now, don't make me sing a solo. I am not a soloist, all right? Everybody agree? I mean, not that I'm not a soloist, but agree to sing? All right, play it through one time, Kirsty. to sing with me? Let's sing it together.
right there in this moment I'm singing this and I'm like wow that's so true that he would he would give that sacred head that he would die for sinners and you guys don't realize how much of a sinner I was and am for sinners such as I and then we sang through a couple more verses and then we got to this last verse. I want to sing the last verse. Let's do it. But drops. But drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. All right, let's stop right there. Do we understand the debt of love that we owe? I mean, like there is... It's, a, it's a, it, the gift of Christ that has been freely just dropped on us and given to us as he has snatched us from the jaws of death. I didn't know what to, what to say, what to think, what to do as I contemplated this. And then we sang this last line. Let's, let's sing it. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. And at this moment, I just began to cry, which was strange for an 18-year-old dude who had never cried in his memory. It hit me. I am to be completely consumed with Jesus Christ. What do I do? How can I repay him? Oh wait, I can't. For those of you who don't like to owe anybody anything, you can't repay what he has done for you and he doesn't require it. It's grace. I told the guys last week, I said, the gift of of salvation through Jesus Christ is completely free and all it takes of you is everything that you are. Completely consumes us. When we realize that we are freed from sin, we discover the freedom in being chained to Christ. to give myself away, to die, to give it all up for the work of Christ to go forward, for the gospel to be promoted among my friends, my family, my co-workers, people next to me, people, my neighbors, people in another state, people in another country, people I will never meet, to spend my life promoting the gospel, however I can do that, is the very least it's the very least that I can do. The test, then, of a gospel-transformed church, meaning a church that's been transformed by the gospel. The test is not seen just in how we gather, but it's in how we scatter. Will we go? Will we take the gospel and scatter to all peoples and promote the gospel of Jesus Christ with every piece, every bit of our lives? One friend of mine, I met him uh, about eight years ago. And I knew him for a, a few years. He was uh, in his 80s a Chinese man, and spent a uh, good portion of his ministry life in prison for the sake of the gospel. And he showed me a picture of a worship gathering that he led in China. And there was, it, was, it was in a cave, all right? Imagine this. And there were a thousand people that had gathered in this cave. And, and I asked him, I was like, what, what is the... 
what's everybody holding? Everybody's holding something white. And he said, that's a Bible. We got hold of a Bible. This is back in the 80s. We got hold of a Bible, and we passed it around, and everybody took a page. And we were that excited to be together and to celebrate and to have a page of the scriptures. Gathering without fancy sound systems or high-definition screens, gathering, worshiping the proclaimed Savior, and then scattering and spreading the good news. One friend of mine is doing some work in India where there are hundreds of unreached people groups. In the state of Madras, um, the, the vast majority of the millions and millions of people that live there uh, will, live, will, will be born, live their lives, and will die with never having an opportunity to respond or to even hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what missiologists call an unreached people group. And a friend of mine has been doing work there and over the past 20 years has seen 65 new churches develop within a 300-mile radius. And now, just now, the rate of churches exploding around them, new congregations, people, as they scatter, as the gospel goes forward, they can't keep up with the pastoral training. They have more churches now than they have uh, the ability to put pastors in the churches. Now, I've been wrestling with this thing. Like, okay, so what do we do about that? And we, I'm going to talk about it later, but we have an opportunity to possibly train some pastors of the lower caste in India for these churches. As the gospel explodes and as they scatter and as they go forward, We are called, you have to understand this, we are not just called to get together and to meet and to have potlucks, which I am so thankful for our potlucks and I'm looking forward to next week, all right? But fellowship is not the only reason we gather. We gather so we can hear the word, so we can scatter. We come in so that we can go back out. And guys, if we don't scatter well, then we are a failed church. If we come in and we get pumped up about Jesus and we walk out and we live an entire six-day six period without at one time ever demonstrating that it's all about Jesus, having the opportunity to go into all the world and in some way preach the gospel, if we don't scatter well, it doesn't matter how we gather. Go into all the world, Jesus said. Go into all of the world and take the gospel, preach the gospel to all nations or peoples is the actual literal translation or people groups. As I've said Experts have discovered that there are 11,000 people groups, known people groups, in the world that we live in. 11,000 people groups. Now, missiologists, people who are focusing on understanding what it means to spread the gospel, have been working very hard to locate and understand who the people groups are that are completely unreached, meaning they will wake up, they will be born, they will wake up every day, they will live their lives, and then they will die with never having one opportunity to hear the gospel or to respond to it. And what we've been discovering is that out of 11,000 people groups in this world, over 6,000 people groups today are unreached. Does that not make you tremble? Over 6,000 people groups, entire populations of people, 
that we are to take the gospel to. Do you guys realize that this great commission, as it's become called, this sending of Jesus, this scattering of Jesus, of his original followers to go into all the world and preach the gospel, do you realize that that is just as applicable and alive and real today, 2,000 years later, as it was then? Like when we read this, we need to hear, you need to hear your name called out. And you need to recognize that this is just alive, just as active of a commission as it ever was. To go find a people group that ha- does not have an opportunity to hear, to hear the gospel, where the gospel has not yet gone, and to go there, to leave Baltimore maybe, to leave your homes, to leave your friends, your family, and to do what the church has always done. Is there anything that we as a church need to sacrifice in order to better mobilize people to take the gospel and to be about the great commission around us and beyond? Is there anything that we're doing that doesn't promote the gospel that's just a waste of time? In your own personal lives, is there any way that you're spending your time or your resources or your money in ways that just simply do not promote the gospel? What percentage of your resources and time and money are spent in ways that have nothing to do with the great commission of Jesus Christ? Can you say that every aspect, every bit of your life is truly all about Jesus? Or is 99.5% of it really about you? Is there anyone who has not been recognizing the great commission opportunities even right around you with your neighbors or with your job, an opportunity to share the gospel in a real way with someone? Do we, do we not recognize that living in an urban area like Baltimore, that the world comes to us as well? And that some of you have opportunities every day to interact with, with people who will be going back somewhere else. Are you taking the opportunities that God gives you to be about the Great Commission and to take the gospel to all peoples? Your friends, your neighbors, your family members. Is there anyone here that God might be calling and it's time to leave? It's time to go. I give myself away. It's the very least that I can do. Guys, as we have been going through Mark, and as we're wrapping it up here, as we've been trying to look at Jesus and recognize that it's all about Jesus, I just want us to live that out. Like I want people to be able to look at, look at our church and say, They don't have it all together, but they're scattering. They're living out the Great Commission. They're sacrificing. They're giving whatever they can away. Can people say that about us? Can people say that about you this morning? And here's the great beauty of it all. As soon as we begin to feel guilt because we have not done dot, dot, dot. As soon as we begin to feel guilt, we're reminded of the cross. We're reminded that God saves lazy people. And it is that place 
of grace and of forgiveness that we have to continue to go back to. We have to go back to Jesus. We have to look at his face. And it's only there that we can then find the freedom to go and be about what he wants us to be about. Let's all stand together and pray. God, we want it to be all about Jesus. We want our lives to completely reflect the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us for the places where we, for, where we forget, where we are selfish, where we are 99.5% about us and only 5% about you. Forgive us for missing the opportunities, the gospel opportunities that you have placed all around us. And God, open our eyes, let the scales fall so we can see what it is that you want us to see. God, we will follow you. And we ask you to lead us. Show us where to go as a church. Show us as individuals where to go, where to spend our time, our money, our resources, and our lives. The people that you want us to love, God, we will love them. And we will share the gospel with them. We will take the good news of Jesus Christ to them. Give us the strength. Give us the power. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.